Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. An honor to be with you this morning, an honor to open the Word of God with you. We're going to open God's Word in a bit of a different way today. I am beginning what will be three weeks which is bold because next week we're voting on whether we're going to continue doing this together or not. I'm beginning what will be three weeks of teaching, and I'm calling it Ecclesiology 101. And somebody just said, Pastor, why the big words? Because it's the word. If someone is studying the weather, they're a meteorologist. If someone is studying, I don't know, rocks and minerals, are they a geologist? If someone works with animals in a zoo, they're a zoologist. If you're studying things in the church, you are some form of an ologist, a theologist, a theologian. Oh, pastor, I'm no theologian. Read your Bible better. You most certainly are. Ecclesiology is the study of the nature and structure of the church. It fits into the whole of Christian theology. It is a, an aspect of what we as Christians believe. The purpose of this teaching is to instruct further God's gathered people about the biblical role of deacons. But I cannot just start there. That would be unfaithful to God's design, to the biblical text, So I need to start further back. Now, it's only going to be three weeks because I think it can be done in three weeks. And sometimes the Lord says, no, you're wrong. But on this one, I I think uh, this is where he's leading it to be a simple three weeks. I'm going to teach today on the church member. I'm going to teach next week on elders. And I'm going to teach the third week on deacons. Because we must understand and know the organization that all of these parts fit into correctly for them to operate in a manner that reflects God's design. So uh, I'm struggling to understand the message that I have prepared for you today as a sermon. Uh, I'm struggling to understand this as preaching, so you'll bear with me if it seems like it may be a little more classroom lecture-like. That's possible. I'm hoping to instruct as to God's design for the church, but I think I'll probably end up preaching somewhere in there as well. So I'm preaching on this because currently at the village church, the office of deacon is one that needs to be filled. And currently at Byron Baptist Church, it is one that you have been working for a while to understand in a greater biblical way. I want to be very clear that in nothing of what I say do I mean to demean an empty office or demean an office that has been filled with a need to see more clearly God's biblical design. I'm thankful for faithful men that have served at Byron Baptist, uh, and this is simply my public apology that in recent past, years past, I have not been as respectful to the deacons of Byron Baptist Church as I wish I had been. You've been faithfully serving your church in a way that you have agreed to, and that should be commended to you. Thank you. At the Village Church, it's an office where it's empty. What is it? What what is a deacon? What What do they do? And 
I would apologize for the teaching not having come out yet, but I understand that all things happen in God's time, and I believe this is the right time for us as two churches, whether God joins us together as one or not, for us as God's people in Byron to simply have a greater understanding as to the role of deacon. In the event, Lord willing, that these two churches continue on as one after next Sunday, we will be in need of appointing deacons to serve us. If these two churches continue on individually, deacons will remain necessary. So you see, it doesn't necessarily matter what the result of next week is. As God's people, we must understand God's word as much as we can in every context. And so um, I suppose we're stepping into a little bit more of a classroom, but we'll allow God's word to be the instructor, and I pray that he will use me in my feeble attempt to convey these thoughts today. Would you join me in prayer before we begin? Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us. Father, I pray that as your people, we would see your design more clearly in Scripture. I pray, Father, that we would do our best to honor it as simply as we can. And I pray that you would give us wisdom in those areas, Father, that are not as crystal clear as we may want them to be. That you would give us wisdom in those areas where, as your word has said, you've given us a sound mind. Father, would you help us to use the sound mind that you have given us to operate in a manner pleasing to you that reflects your glory and your design? Father, and in those areas where your word is so clear, oh God, strengthen us that we may simply obey what you tell us to do. Father, in my own attempt today, I feel very inadequate to the task. I pray for your help. I pray, Father, that you would be instructing all of the hearts gathered here, and I include myself, God. I thank you for your word. I pray today, Father, that as your word is brought in whatever form and in many places throughout the world, Father, I pray that the sinner would be called to repentance and be saved by grace through faith in Christ. I pray that the holiness of your people would be promoted, that we would be holy as you are holy, for this is what you have called us to. And I pray above all things, God, that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. In his name we pray, amen. I have probably prepared more of a manuscript than I typically do, simply to be pointed. This is a subject, if you are close to me, you know that the matters and function of the church are very important to me. How a church is supposed to operate is something that I feel very strongly about, uh, but this is not a moment for me to commandeer this pulpit for my own purposes, and so my remarks are fairly prepared, and if you catch me looking down and reading, well, then the men will just be reminded that Charlie has taught us that's how Jonathan Edwards preached one of his greatest sermons ever, so we can all not hold it against me if I just read words off a page. I enjoyed writing this sermon, and I'm looking forward to the ones that are coming, because I care so much about how we as Christians would conduct ourselves within the church. I was invigorated for my care for you, invigorated to teach you, and I pray that God's word will have an effect on his people as we work through this. Often in our day, the office of deacon is improperly filled, poorly executed, and in the experience of many, a source of trouble in the life of the church. Most people that have grown up in the church have a story 
of that deacon somewhere in their history. It doesn't really matter what church you grew up in. Many in the room, I understand, have grown up in a Baptist church. I did not, but I have that story. Some of you in the room I know did not grow up with a church with Baptist on the sign, but you have that story as well. Why? Because we do not give ourselves to the attention of what God's word says is to fill the role of deacon. And so it is improperly filled, it is poorly executed, and it is a source of trouble far too often in the life of the church. At a pastor's conference, I heard a pastor say, next week, when you're talking to your demons, I mean your deacons, and that, you're right, we all, we, some of you tried not to laugh and some of you did. That should never be said in the house of God. I was so offended at that comment. Because God has designed an office in the church. This is not what God has intended. By God's design and among God's people, the office of deacon is absolutely beautiful and absolutely necessary. Deacons exist specifically and very simply to serve the church. We talked a bit about that last week as we ended our one another series with serve one another. The thought of diakoneo one another, which is done by diakonos, which is a servant. That is the word that we derive our modern word deacon from. And at its very core, to be a deacon is to be a servant. We talked about this last week. And when we actually get to deacons, we will talk about it even more. At its very core, specifically and simply, deacons are to serve the church, the people of God. The work of a deacon may vary, but at its core, the labor of a deacon is the unity of the church. Under and alongside the teaching and oversight ministry of elders and pastors, deacons serve by meeting the various tangible, that is material or physical, needs of the church. Again, we'll examine this in greater detail. We'll look at questions like, who can be a deacon? What do deacons actually do? What do they not do? But before we look at any of that, we must first have a brief survey of what God's design is that we may grow in our understanding of how the church is to operate, what offices are to fill it. Starting this week with the church member. If we do not rightly understand the organization that deacons belong to and how they fit into it, we will continue to see the office of deacon improperly filled, poorly executed, and a source of trouble in the church. Rather, if we draw near to God's design and seek to see it implemented as he would by his word, we will see men thrive in the office and overall better health within the church, and we will see a greater glory of God as his people draw nearer to what he has designed for them. Our first week, ecclesiology, the study and nature and structure of the church, specifically is about what the Bible says regarding the church member. We have to start there. If we start at the top, we're inappropriate. Churches do not start with pastors or deacons. They start with the gathered people of God, Christians. So starting today with the church member. Various matters inside the group of ecclesiology, members, leaders, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, Today, focusing on members. My goal for the note takers that like to write down a purpose, here's your purpose statement for this week's message. My goal is to equip you with a more robust view of the design and beauty 
that God has for his people. We should never look at the government structure of a church and think, at the very thought of how a church operates, every Christian should say, let's learn more. Let's understand more. Let's look deeper. Let's draw closer to what God has for his people. I pray that we will have a more robust view of the design and beauty of the offices that God has for his people and that we would appreciate that design and moreover desire to follow it more closely and so glorify God in a greater way. Let us understand this. We'll never perfect it. There will always be error. Let us strive to draw more closer always to God's word. The church member First, the church. It seemed like a bit of a a redundancy for me because at the onset of the One Another series, I talked about the church and how it is formed. We talked about it being a Christ-created community, and I must still start there. When God, according to his mercy and by his grace, through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, redeems a sinner to new life, he makes them a Christian. God's redemptive work makes Christians He saves sinners, they become a Christian, and they are added to, they become a member in what 1 Timothy 3.15 says, is the household of God, the church. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? I apologize that the scripture references are going to be wandering and all over. You saw Matthew on the board and you turned to it perhaps, but we might actually get to Matthew. There's several references if you ever want the notes. If you ever want the references in whole, please let me know. I'm glad to give them. Ephesians chapter 2, as you're finding your way there, there, Ephesians 2. In verse 1, the Bible says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. Every saved sinner was at one point dead in their sin. Dead. No life. No spiritual life. Dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5 says that God made us alive together with Christ. And so Paul, writing these words in Ephesians 2, would you look down, draw your attention to verse 12. In light of having been dead, in light of God having made us alive, verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time, when you were dead, prior to life, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 12 is the unredeemed sinner. Verse 13, but now, oh, praise God, but now, In Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have you been brought near by the blood of Christ? Before we can rightly understand the church member, we have to ask the first question Are you saved? Are you born again to new life by the grace of God 
through faith in Jesus, through profession of faith in Jesus as Lord? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you profess Jesus as Lord? Why would I do that? We were just dwelling on in our Sunday school class, evangelizing and talking about the good news, the important news, being urgent, sharing truth and honesty in our evangelizing. The truth is that God is ultimately and in every superior way holy and separate of all sin. God is not marred by sin, marked by sin. There's no sliver of sin in existence with God. He is purely and absolutely holy. And he created man in his image. And he created woman from the man and he placed them in the garden and he said, eat of anything that you wish in the garden, but I have this rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and life, of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall die. God gave a command to the first man and the first woman. I command that you do not do this. And we can talk all day long about Eve eating the fruit and giving it to the man and Man having an Adam's apple now because he choked on the fruit. What a ridiculous thought. But the reality is God gave a command and man broke God's command. And so, as we talk, uh, I, I talk, I'm sorry to use these words. I know no other words. They're ingrained in my mind. As we talk as humans of finding our federal, that is legal, head in Adam as the father of humanity... We are all from Adam, Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and every person under Adam and Eve for the rest of time until Christ returns is born in the consequence of that sin. We are all by birth, by nature, because of our earthly parents, our federal physical head, we are all sinners, and we are in need of redemption in order for us to draw near to God now, atonement for sin must be made. Now, this is not something we have to look forward to. It's something to look back upon. Atonement for sin has been made. We will share this supper at the end of this service, remembering the death of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his death until he comes. Why? Because in the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ... All those who by faith draw near are justified by a holy God and redeemed from their sinful nature. God is holy. Man is sinful and accountable to God for sin. Christ has atoned for sin, making it possible for you to approach a holy God. And so now the question simply becomes, as we sit here this morning, are you saved what say you regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of sin? Are you living every moment right now in faith toward Jesus Christ and repentance toward God? It's that simple. And you must answer that question. When God does this, when God saves a dead-in-sin soul, he does not leave them alone. Everyone can look around the room and say, praise God, I'm not the only one in church today. And we as a church can look around the world and say, praise God, we're not the only gathered church today. Because God does not leave 
his people alone. No, God gathers his people together. A Christian never has to say, I just wish there was another one here with me. I wish I wasn't alone. No, no, no. If you're alone in your faith, you've isolated yourself. God does not leave his people alone. God gathers his people together in the world as he sets them apart from the world for his glory and his purpose. And I'm going to say that again so that we can understand our position. God sets us apart from the world as he gathers us together in the world. We are not of the world. We are now of our Heavenly Father. Your life should look drastically different because of what God has done for you in Jesus and the faith that you are living out. God makes a people, a Christ-created community, the church, a community of redeemed sinners. The church also specifically gathered wherever they are. God's biblical design for gathering his people to worship him What is the point of gathering together? Somebody say, what do you go to church for? I I want you to get this answer down. If you want to write it down, see me later so you can write this down. But I I want you to get this answer in your mind. There is a reason that God's people come together on the first day of the week, every week, every week. Go to church every week, all the time. Why? Why do you go to church? Someone might ask you, why do you go to church? God gathers his people together to worship him. I can give you more. I will. We gather to worship. What do you go to church for? To worship God. Why do you do that? You want to open door to the gospel and evangelizing in your life with people that you know? Start there. What do you go to church for? To worship God? To worship God? Yeah. He's so holy and I'm such a sinner, but he sent Jesus. Open door. Walk right through it. People are going to want to know more. They're going to ask more as you begin to unravel your life with Christ. God's biblical design for gathering his people to worship him and to encourage one another in life and faith is the local church. Not a small group in someone's home. Maybe a local church starts that way. We can see it in scripture. Not a small group, not a Bible study, not a ministry somewhere outside of the church that ministers to people on the street. God gathers his people into groups like this everywhere in the world. He brings them together. It might not look like this, It might not sound like this. It might not operate like this, but God gathers his people wherever they are locally together as Christians. The book of Acts, the letters of Paul show over and over that whenever the gospel is preached, wherever people believed, repented of sin, followed Christ through faith, wherever those believers and professors of faith were baptized, the Bible shows over and over, a church began. And a church began. And there is the base level, the biblical view of the requirements to join a church. Somebody may come and say, Pastor, I'd like to join your church. What is required of me? This is the best statement that could ever be made. These are my own words. Some others would have to work it out. But what are the requirements to join a church? I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and I confess Jesus as Lord. I'm repenting of sin I have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I desire to covenant or commit together with this local group of Christians. What are the requirements to join a church? Oh, anyone can join a church, but you must be born again. You don't find yourself in the household of God without being born again. 
You'll not squeak in because your parents were saved, or your grandma was saved, or your siblings were saved, or your neighbor was saved. You will find your way into the household of God because you have been born again by the Spirit of the living God to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. At the most fundamental level, a church is a locally gathered group of Christians committed to Christ and to one another. I'm glad you're here today. If you're here today to listen to me, that's only part of why you should be here. And it should have nothing to do with me. It should have to do with whoever is going to stand here and open God's word and reveal God's truth to you from God's word that you may follow God in a better way. I happen to be the one doing that today. You are here to worship God and to encourage one another in this life because how many of us need encouragement in this life every single day? At the most fundamental level, a church is a locally gathered group of Christians committed to Christ and to one another. Not four walls, not outreach, not evangelistic plans, not small groups, not ministries to every demographic in the church in the world. The church, write this down, is a locally gathered group of Christians. One, glorifying God by regularly gathering for the specific purpose of worship, observing the ordinance of the Christian faith, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the whole creation. I cannot make it any more simple than that. That is a local church. The worship of God, the administration of the, of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the whole creation. Now, wherever you have a gathered people for a specific purpose, there has to be some form of organization. If you'd like to see this on a smaller level, come on over on any given day. There are eight of us in our home, and some days the organization is good, and some days the organization is not so good. But anytime you have any group of people together, you have to organize in some way. It's interesting to me that in the early church, and we'll look at this, in the early church, they grow in exponential ways from Christ's ascension into heaven through the book of Acts and on until today. Wherever you have a gathering of people for a specific purpose, there has to be some form of organization. We all know that people gathering together without any sense of organization would result in utter chaos. If there was no organization here, I think Psalms views that as, the writer in the Psalm, I think, views that as casting off restraint where there is no sense of organization, it would be utter chaos. For me, this is the very base for specific church membership, the church member, not loosely associated, specifically committed. Church membership takes a lot of flack these days. The Bible pastor does not say that I need to join a church. You are correct. I cannot point you to any specific verse or set of verses and show you the words, church member in the Bible. Nor can I show you the word Trinity in the Bible. But I pray that every one of us agree to the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God three and one. We just were singing in the praise of God three and one out loud. So to say that something's not found in the Bible means the Bible doesn't teach on it is an incorrect statement. The Bible does not specifically say church member However, I can point you to numerous passages of Scripture that strongly imply the need of belonging as a member to a local church. I submit to you across the pages of the New Testament, specific church membership is implied everywhere. Not once, not twice, all over. 
from the teachings of Christ all the way on through the book of Revelation, we find the implications of belonging specifically to the local church. Here's a brief survey for you. You can write these down and visit them later. I encourage you to do so. Consider with me how this brief survey of instructions for God's people calls for specific membership. I'm going to highlight the verse, and then I'm going to challenge the thought that I don't need to belong to a church. The command of Christ in Matthew 18, 17 calls for unrepentant sin to be told to the church. If there is no need for specific membership in a church, who do I tell that to? I am hindered from fulfilling what Christ says to do if there's not some form of specific gathering of God's people. Paul tells the church at Corinth that an unrepentant sinner is to be removed from among them. I didn't write it in my notes because I didn't want to dwell on it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthian church to take an unrepentant sinner and, and I quote, hand him over to Satan. Goodness. If there's no need for a specific church membership, how is one removed from among them? And from what are they removed? Paul tells Timothy, let a widow be enrolled, and he gives several qualifications, 1 Timothy 5, 9, 1 Timothy 5, 11, and refuse to enroll younger widows. If there is no need for specific church membership, what are widows enrolled into? By whom? To where? For what purpose? In addition to all of this, Paul addresses several of his letters to the church at and to the church of. If there is no need for specific church membership, why do Paul's letters go to specific churches? Why do his letters address the faithful at, to the saints at, to the, if Philippians chapter one, to the saints, to the faithful saints, I, I believe it says, I don't want to misquote it, let's just look at it right here, it's a page over. It says in Philippians chapter one, there it is. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. There's the whole picture all in one. Church member, deacons, elders, right there at the church at Philippi. If there's no need for specific church membership, why do Paul's letters go to specific churches? And in Acts, Luke tells us over and over of people being added to the number of believers. If there is no need for specific church membership, why were they recording numbers of people being saved? Now, we struggle with that in our world today, metrics and basing things on various things, but why were they keeping track of all this for not a specific reason? And notice that in Acts, it's always the church in Jerusalem. When Luke writes early, it's the church in Jerusalem, one place, and yeah, it's a big city, and there's a lot of people there, but he's recording the number of people for one gathering of people. These are all questions that I had to answer myself. As I considered in the history of the village church that we were an elder-ruled church and that we should be an elder-led church with the voice of the congregation as necessary, I had to start answering some of these questions. As an elder-ruled church, as a pastor in an elder-ruled church, I was effectively firing the church member. Really good book written on that. I would encourage you to read it. Pastor, don't fire your church member. Because you, I'm going to get to in a minute, have a job and a responsibility as a church member. You have authority as a church member. 
in an elder-ruled church, an elder removes the authority of the congregation and does as I wish, as I say, because I'm the pastor. That's become gross to me. It wasn't gross at the time because I didn't recognize, but as I started to examine the scripture and start to see the need of specific church membership, all of a sudden, well, wait a second. This changes my thoughts on ecclesiology. I hope that you're open to allowing God's word to change your thinking. Our best thoughts are wrong. Only God's words are right. So I hope, I pray that God's word has the authority to change your thinking about a given topic or subject. I had to start answering these questions. I came to the conclusion, specific church membership is absolutely vital, absolutely necessary, and I believe that to my core. I'm so thankful to be a church member. Now, we may do it far differently than they did in the first century. I'm sure we do. And I find the evidence compelling. In whatever way was best for them at the time, the early church kept track of specific people, and those people were church members. The church, made by God, called together specifically, under ultimately God's authority. The church under God's ultimate authority. According to the Bible, like this is 101. I hope that you're here with me saying we know, Pastor. I hope you're saying that. But I don't want to take for granted that everybody understands this. Especially our young people, I want you to grow and understand the church is not mine. It's not anyone in this room. It's not man's. The church belongs to the living God who made it on the profession of faith in Jesus Christ and paid for it through his blood. The church is God's. The church is under God's ultimate authority. This brief survey of God being the authority of the church throughout time and everywhere around the world. Matthew 16, 18, Christ says, I will build my church. I will build my church. The church belongs to God. Ephesians 3, 21, the church exists for God's glory. 1 Timothy 3, 15, the church is the household of God. Ephesians 5, 25, the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.24 and 2.19, the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 1.22, 4.15, 5.23, and Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the church. I know you didn't get all those verses. Just get a hold of me later. I can give them to you. The point of me reading all of those is for you to understand no pastor can simply pick one verse and say, God's in charge. Because the Bible is so full of the church belonging to and being under the authority of a living God. In the early church, outside of apostolic authority, we never see any man, a group of men, any organization, conference, association, convention, you name it, we never see anyone exercising authority over the local church, biblically. Churches are autonomous, able to govern themselves and maintain their own affairs. I mean, that's probably not a revelation to many of us in the room. We believe that. You, you either, in this room, you either say, I am a Baptist, or your views are Baptist views, and you don't want to acknowledge it, but that is what it means. Biblically, at the base level, people get so worried and scared about words and terms. Baptist faith throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries, has shown us the church is the authority. There is no one over the church except the local church gathered together. 
outside of this group of people, this is why we're working toward, are we going to be one group or two groups? What are we going to do? If these two groups become one group, there's no authority outside of us but the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our authority. That may be difficult for some to swallow. Some may be saying, preach it louder, pastor. That's just the truth. The church, made by Christ, gathered by Christ, under Christ's ultimate authority, however also, given authority. The church has authority. Now, I think it looks different than what many of us would maybe think. It probably looks even different than what we would want, and I'm only going to walk through, I think I've got four different things here to show uh, examples of the congregation's authority. The church is given authority by God to care for itself. In Corinthians, there was a lawsuit, Paul writes, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a lawsuit between believers, and Paul says to them, is there not anyone in the church able to judge between you in this matter? You know what he's saying? Set up a court of law in the church and let two believers stand before a believer or group of believers and let those believers work out together the situation that exists. I never want to hear of Christians suing Christians. The Bible says don't do it. We, as God's people, I don't think this is happening anywhere in the church. I hope not, or I just didn't even step on toes. I just pulled feet out from under people. The, the Bible says that Christians ought to be able to gather together with one another and with the Holy Spirit present as he dwells within us, solve and maintain any matter that arises. As two churches consider becoming one, I even would go so far as to give this illustration. We've considered, and some of you have said, should we like get outside counsel? And there has been outside counsel that has been helpful, but what's been offered is maybe we should like look into some of these like church merger consultation firms. We kick these ideas around and you can spend twenty-five dollars or $30,000 to have them tell you how to become one church. I believe, and the four men that have been working on this believe that God by the Holy Spirit gives wisdom to his people to make decisions for his people. That is the pure meaning of the church being autonomous and having authority. God is the ultimate authority, but he has made man responsible to shepherd and care for his people. This responsibility is carried out in two offices specifically. Elders, or pastors, or shepherds, and deacons, specifically. But this in no way means that the congregation is jobless or has no authority. I just spent all last week talking about how all of us are supposed to serve one another. So I talked one week about how everyone in the church is supposed to serve one another, and talked the next week about how deacons are the ones who are supposed to serve. Therein comes the great temptation of, I'll let the deacons do it. There's deacons that can serve and care for everyone. No, 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 that's all of our jobs. And then there are exemplary servants who become recognized by the church, recommended by the church, and installed by the church to serve the needs of the church. Elders and deacons do not leave the congregation jobless and without authority. In fact, maybe this thought hasn't struck you, but it strikes me often. Without church members, there's really no need for me and there's really no need for a deacon. This is why it's the church first. If a church is built around a man, run away. Just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If the church is built around one man and one teaching and one person only, run away. The church is a whole, and every part matters in its operation. Ephesians says building and supporting and building up into the head that is Christ. 
Without a congregation, elders and deacons cannot function. There's no need for them. The job of the congregation falls into two categories, scriptural and sensible. Sensible, prudent, wise, however you want to define it. Scriptural and sensible. I have a few examples of scriptural congregational authority. I pray as I reveal these from Scripture. It is my prayer that if you are here today and you are a church member, you will understand in a new way the incredible and amazing responsibility that you have within your church. I'm really quite insignificant to the whole scheme. I'm a member of the church that God uses to teach and speak and shepherd and care for specifically. Deacons are members of the church. Pastors are members of the church fulfilling specific roles, but we're all together church members. Matters of scriptural congregational authority. You can mark the bullet point and then I can give you more information later. I'm happy to talk with anyone that wants to go deeper on this subject. Trust me, I will talk for days on this topic. One of the first matters of congregational authority in the scripture, and perhaps among the chief and foremost, I would even say the top two reasons uh, to define congregational authority, the first is church membership. Well, Pastor, you just said that saved people are to be members of the church. Yes, and you're also to oversee the membership of the church. That is probably the greatest responsibility that church members have been given. Church membership. In Matthew 16, verse 19, in light of a true profession of faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom, quote, the keys of the kingdom. He gives them to true professors of faith in Jesus Christ to oversee the admission of other true professors of Jesus Christ into the church. Christians specifically gathered together oversee the admission of other Christians into their specific gathering. Why? In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches in light of the ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto the apostles gathered in the upper room. Peter preaches his first sermon, and the Bible tells us that around 3,000 believers were added to their number. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches again, people believe and it says the number of men came to about 5,000. And even in my study, I was struck. I have been, I've been prone to say in the past that by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, there's like 7,000 people in the church. Maybe. It says that about 3,000 were added in the end of Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 4, it says the number of men came to about 5,000. So there's argument for maybe it's only 5,000. Does it matter? Thousands. If it was 1,000, are you kidding me? What happened? Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit saved dead in sin souls to new life. Christians, the apostles, the disciples, the 120 gathered together, recognized what had happened in the lives of people and they added them to their number. You are no longer whatever you were. You are now with us Christians. You're now, I love the saying, in the way. You're here with us now. The clear implication is that when people believe, they are added to the church. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom and said, whatever you bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven. And if, like me, you have ever wondered, what on earth does that even mean? When you dig into church history, everyone agrees. This is Christians overseeing the admission of Christians into the church. This is Christians protecting the who and what of the gospel. I can't take that statement as my own. I read that one, and it's a good one. We oversee the who and the what of the gospel. And when we identify those who have believed through faith in Jesus Christ as a Christian, we bring them into our fellowship. Now, I can't point you to a verse that says you must become a church member, but I can point you to the fact that no Christian was ever alone and they were brought into fellowship with other Christians. That has to be defined. It is specific. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. God has made his people God has given his people authority for identifying true professors of Jesus Christ in this world, and it is our responsibility to welcome true professors into the church. Church membership, the first responsibility. The second responsibility, church discipline. And everybody said, oh no. Closely on the heels of church membership is the job of church discipline. Why? Because when you put any two people in one room, give it time, a disagreement's going to arise. You put 100 people into one room, give it time, multiple disagreements are going to arise. Well, in the early church, they put a couple thousand people into one room. How many disagreements do you think arose? How many sins, Christian to Christian, do you think happened in that gathering of thousands of people? We're sinners. We are sinners. We're saved by a holy God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're weak in our sin, and we sin against one another. In Matthew chapter 18... The teachings of Jesus show Christians how to handle this situation. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have a problem with another Christian, you have the responsibility to go to that person and handle that problem in light of the instructions that God gives in Matthew 18 and to see a resolution come to the two of you, period. If you don't leave here and deal with that, God is going to judge you for it. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it will be your fault that you disobeyed the command of God. Ultimately, if two Christians cannot resolve, Matthew 18, 17 says that if one sins against another and will not repent, when called out, the sin is to be told to the church. There's not a single person in this room that understands what I just said. It was like, sounds awesome. If you won't repent of sin, if I won't repent of sin, we have the responsibility to declare it Perhaps in a setting similar to this, they won't repent of sin. True believers in Jesus Christ repent of sin, and they won't do it if the weight of the gathered church of God will not bring a sinner to their knees in repentance. They are not saved, and they do not belong in the household of God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom and said, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God has given his people authority to identify false professors of Jesus in the world and he has given his people the authority to keep them out of the church. I want to be careful and I want to make sure you understand these statements. Unrepentant sinners are welcome here. We don't kick them out from the gospel. We say, I don't think you understand the gospel. You're not 
saved. If you refuse to repent of sin, you are not saved. You're in rebellion. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, Acts, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 or 3, 3, verse 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back that times of refreshing may come from God. Church membership, church discipline. I'm fond of saying I hope we never have to do it, but you know what? It's in God's word for a reason. To be completely honest, it's only a matter of time because there's no perfect church and there's no perfect person. Church membership, church discipline, affirming pastors. I want to make a note. Some of you say there's no specific verse for uh, church membership in the Bible. And I would say there's also no specific verse in the Bible for a church affirming a pastor. Well, that's an interesting standoff now. So we have to understand that when we read the Bible, we have to take in what the Bible is saying in the whole, and we have to understand as safely and as carefully as we humanly can, looking at with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit what God's Word says and understand the implications of God's Word. I submit this to you. Whoa, 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 did you just say that the church doesn't affirm a pastor? Well, no, I said there's no specific Bible verse that says that's their job. But now I'll show you the implication that I believe correctly shows it is their job, and that is what needs to happen. The Bible is clear that Christ gives shepherds, pastors, and elders to the church. Okay, we can agree on that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says he gave gifts to the church, pastor, uh, evang- uh, apostles, evangel- apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, Ephesians 4, 11. And the Holy Spirit, Acts 20, 28 says, makes a pastor, makes an overseer. But there's a whole list of biblical qualifications that have to be dealt with. And, and there alone comes the greatest implication for someone somewhere has to have the responsibility of making sure that pastors meet those qualifications, that the Holy Spirit has done that work. So, Though there is no specific scriptural example of the congregation's authority in affirming elders, it is absolutely, I believe correctly, safely implied that a congregation weighs the qualifications God's word gives, that a congregation carefully considers the manner men in front of them to serve as pastors, as shepherds, That, a congregation say, the Holy Spirit has done this work. This man meets these qualifications. These men meet these qualifications. We affirm them as our pastors. I see the role of the congregation as so clearly implied. This implication can be pressed even further to understand the congregation's authority over matters of doctrine. If the congregation is supposed to affirm pastors and elders over them, and if the primary job of the pastor and the elder is to teach and give instruction in sound doctrine, then there has to be a group of people that understand what sound doctrine is. They have to be able to weigh if that man understands sound doctrine and so affirm that this man is qualified. I just made every church member a theologian. It is incumbent upon you to know what the Bible says and teaches, not to rely on me to tell you what it says and teaches. Then, when those two things happen, we have a beautiful relationship of my declaring the truth or any other man declaring the truth, your examination of the truth, and we all grow in our understanding of doctrine. Church membership, church discipline, affirming pastors, and for the purpose of this sermon series, recommending deacons. In Acts chapter 6, the men who would serve that church were recommended 
by the church. We will examine this more when we look at deacons specifically, but recommending deacons is the job of the church. Not a pastor, not a board, not a committee. The church. Those at the village are familiar with me saying, you're the committee. The church is the committee. You do the work. Church membership, church discipline, affirming pastors, recommending deacons. I can point to all these as scriptural examples of the congregation's authority. Lastly, matters of sensible congregation authority. Sensible congregational authority. What are those, pastor? Matters of sensible congregational authority are derived from how a church agrees to operate together. Churches have constitutions. Churches have bylaws. Churches have documents that govern how they do things. And that is where sensible authority comes from. It's where it's defined. It's where it's understood. Examples of this could be approving a church budget. There's not even really anything to draw the example of in Scripture of a church budget being approved by the congregation. But it's really sensible. If I just say, here's what we're going to spend, here's what we're going to do, well, that puts me on the hook for an awful lot and gives you great reason to say, oh, no, 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 no. If we all approve of that together, we're all responsible to that. That's sensible. That makes sense. Other examples, what missionaries are supported? Whether a building should be added on to, whether we should buy a bus, or whether we should give a dresser full of supplies to the Pregnancy Resource Center. These are all sensible things. Sensible matters are important. They must be well understood. The congregation's involvement in sensible matters provides accountability for elders and deacons and church members alike. It doesn't just save my neck. I mean, it does that because I can say, this was approved by you. We did this. The results of next week, whatever they are, will have done that. Not me. Not Pastor Collins. Not Dan Whaley. Not Steve Heath. We will have made a decision. That's sensible. None of us would have liked it if any person would have stood up and said, here's what we're doing. Sensible matters. They need to be known. They need to be outlined. That's why church governing documents are so important. Constitutions and bylaws let everyone know who's responsible for what. It's not just a document. You go, oh, how boring. Young people, don't grow up thinking that church government documents are boring. Please don't. Please don't. Read them almost as, almost as carefully as you read the scripture. Because in a church's governing documents, you will find out how a church operates. You will know what you are agreeing to. You will understand how it works. You'll understand the role of everyone involved. I'm fond of saying about our bylaws, this is how we do what God tells us to do. All right, that was a lot of information. People are falling asleep, yawning, good grief. This is Eutychus falling out of a window in the middle of the night. I'd love to continue for the rest of the day. I'd love to teach a college course on it if I could. If you want to talk about it, please let me know. This is a ground floor snapshot of the church member. Next week, Lord willing, we'll examine elders. Two things. If you are here today and you are a member of the church, I pray, I pray that you see the importance of your role that you understand it better. If you're here today and you are not a church member, I would be more than happy to talk with you about becoming one. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. As we 
observe the supper that you left us, Lord Jesus, on the night you were betrayed. I pray that you be honored and glorified. As we are two churches considering becoming one, Father, we thank you for this meal that we can approach, the Lord's Supper communion. We thank you that we can approach this without any dividing line. We are Christians, united to you, our God, our King, through faith in you, Lord Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. And we are thankful to worship you in this way. God, use your teaching today, the teaching of your word, to strengthen us in our understanding of the church. Help us in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.